News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what is happening in Ukraine right now. One of the ways in which Ukraine has been incredibly successful is in dealing with Russian propaganda. The machine there that Russia has in place is tremendous, right? We know that. They use it all over the world. And it isn't working as successfully in this particular case. This propaganda force has failed to control the Ukraine narrative. And you know what? There's a lot of different approaches to this about why this is happening, how this could have happened. But joining us now is Stephanie Carvin. He's an associate professor of international relations at Carleton University in Ottawa. Stephanie's written a piece in the Globe and Mail about this. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. So what do you think has happened here? So, you know, that's a really good question because, you know, I mean, really, we have associated Russian military and certain political operations with very good information operations for well over a decade. I mean, we're looking at, you know, there was a a series of cyber attacks conducted against Estonia in 2007 when Russia was upset at the way Estonia was allegedly treating its Russian speaking population, Um, you know, when it, it did an invasion into into the country of Georgia and where it claimed to um, uh, two different territories. It, it, you know, was able to kind of shut off the internet and television immediately, um, you know, just completely dominate the information environment so that the Georgian government couldn't get its narrative out. Um, we've seen it in 2016 in the U.S. election, 2014 in Crimea. Um, you know, there was really good information operations in the lead up to the eventual uh, annexation of Crimea. Um and so, you know, we really did expect to see Russia um, use information operations in any invasion of Ukraine, um, or at least try to dominate the information environment by knocking out um, communications, uh, telecommunications, um, you know, the Internet, um, putting out misinformation. We haven't seen any of that. And it's just kind of weird. It is kind of weird because you're right. They clearly perfected this. So what is it that you think Ukraine is doing that is so effective? So there's a couple of things. Um, one is that um, it may, you know, I, I tried to look at a, a bunch of, of different explanations for what this is. And I mean, a lot of it just comes down to the fact that, you know, the Ukrainians have a good story to tell and the Russians don't. Um, the Russians, um, like, let's like, they're just don't. They, they, I think it's pretty much universally accepted now that they've underperformed. Um, they didn't achieve the goal that was set out for them, which was, of course, kind of the, the capture of Kiev within 72 hours. Didn't happen. Doesn't look like it's going to happen. They're actually losing territory in that space. Um, and, you know, Zelensky, to his credit, is, um, you know, an actor. He knows how to play the role. Right. Um, you know, he's kind of like uh, acting like Churchill in a green T-shirt and doing a really good job of it. And they're showing... Um, you know, they're doing a good job of showing Russian losses. They're doing a good job of showing uh, a good fighting spirit of resistance, of saying, you know, we're a democracy and we're being invaded and we're fighting for our freedom. I mean, like, that's a very good message to put out um, as opposed to Russia, which, you know, is putting out really these absurd lines, which are like, you know, we're going to denazify Ukraine and which is really disgusting. Um, but also uh, this idea about there being, you know, bio labs in Ukraine that the Americans are supporting. I mean, 
no one like there's a couple of people who believe this we can talk about that here in canada too um but by and large it's been a fairly unsuccessful narrative um at least in the west at least in terms of ukraine and uh as a result of that um it, it's hard to um can you say put lipstick on a pig like it's so it's i think it's not even so much what the ukrainians are doing right but the russians right. just don't seem to have adapted their techniques and they don't have a good story to tell I think that's, you've, you've hit it there when you say it's about the narrative, right? About the story to tell, because you can try to control that. And we, you know, in the media too, is, is there's nothing you can do if a story resonates with its audience and you find yourself chasing that story because people are responding to it, right? People, you get an outpouring right. of attention. And that, that seems to be what's happened here is that you can't control the narrative when clearly something resonated with people all over the world hearing Ukraine's story. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think where Ukraine has um, found support is in this really interesting um, development we've seen over the last couple of months, which is where the United States and the United Kingdom in particular have engaged in intelligence, like uh, just dumping out intelligence um, publicly, which is odd. Um, (laughs) Basically, you know, as someone who kind of studies national security and intelligence, we're seeing the U.S. use intelligence in ways that really haven't been done before. And they're calling it pre-bunking as opposed to debunking. So debunking is where, you know, there's a lie out there and you debunk the story, right? You're like, no, that's not right. And here's all the reasons. Well, what the U.S. and the U.K. seem to be doing is saying, okay, we know what Russia's up to. We're going to put out the story before they can, right? So we're going to pre-bunk their eventual lies and uh, that's going to help um, you know tell the story a little Hmm. bit more accurately so I think that's part of it as well and we're going to study this for years um, you know this this use of intelligence and I mean to be honest like the UK and that was a huge risk because if Russia decided not to invade they would have looked you know we would have been back to 2003 and weapons of mass destruction in Iraq right that's what Um, I was wondering because that was a very calculated risk because there was that sense in the weeks leading up to the invasion that the US was like you know the boy who cried wolf that oh they're exaggerating but when they were proven correct i think was that a turning point do you think i think so i think well we'll see what like i said we'll see what happens and like is there any kind of downroad effects from this in the future and is this you know i don't know if this is a kind you know this is a fairly i don't want to like i don't want to downplay it or anything but this is like your fairly like rudimentary conflict in the sense like state a invades state b like when you talk you know there's been so many different kinds of conflicts um you know in, in the world and some are confusing and involve like different countries and different actors in those countries very very difficult multi-layered conflict that's not what this is this is pretty naked aggression and so you know it maybe it lends itself to this kind of like you know, American information operation, if you will. Um, but like, I agree with you. Like, I mean, like the fact the, the boy who cried wolf, I mean, I, I myself, and, and I'll put myself out there. Like, I wasn't sure that Russia was going to invade. I saw the information that the U S was putting out there and I'm thinking, okay, is this Iraq 2003? But, um, you know, I think the way to look at that is really, it's kind of a, um, uh, you have to wonder if the West has learned from 15 years of Russian disinformation, that they finally, okay, like, you know, okay, let's try something different because what do we have to lose? Right. We know how Russia operates in this space. Let's try and do it ourselves. So I think that's what we're seeing. Now, I did, the only caution here is I don't want to be too triumphant about it, right? Like I said, mm-hmm. we don't know what the effect of this will be long term. We don't know if this will work in future conflicts. We don't know if this is going to work in other kinds of Russian information operations, right? Like, it's not just in warfare. We've seen uh, Russia put out um, disinformation regarding vaccines, uh, COVID, um, 5G causes um, 
you know, COVID, all that kind of crazy uh, conspiracy theories. So, you know, it may not work in all circumstances, but it's going to be something I think, you know, the failure of Russian operations, the pre-bunking of uh, the United States and the United, K- uh, United Kingdom, and the success of President Zelensky in terms of telling Ukraine's story, these are going to be things we study for years. And I think it's going to have um, an interesting uh, impact on the way we think about the, how information is used in conflicts going forward. Mm-hmm. So interesting. All right, Stephanie, thank you for your time. Hey, thanks for having me on. That's Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. She's written a really interesting op-ed in the Globe and Mail about Russia's propaganda forces and why they just are not effective this time around in Ukraine. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the number of hospitalizations in BC due to COVID-19 has been on a bit of a roller coaster ride lately, right? It went up on the weekend, went down slightly yesterday to 273. It's a number we watch closely to give us an idea of how we are dealing with COVID-19, especially since it's been about two weeks now since the mask mandate and so many restrictions were lifted. So what are we seeing in the numbers and should we be concerned about a sixth wave at this point? All indications are from the emails and everything I've gotten from you this morning is that for the most part, people are willing to roll with it. They're not that concerned. So let's check in with Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Good morning, Dr. Conway. Good morning, Simi. So are you also closely watching those hospitalization numbers? Oh, very closely. I think it's important we remember that we still live in a world with COVID. There will be transmissions. We need to follow some simple rules to try to minimize the impact of COVID on our lives going forward. Okay, so is there anything for concern that you're seeing in those numbers right now? Not yet. I think uh, I see concern in the general uh, population and people I speak to, some of which uh, are repeating to me that COVID is gone, and this is not the case. If people continue to think that and behave as if COVID is in our rearview mirror, those numbers will go up and I will become very concerned. Do you think there is a sixth wave kind of looming out there? There could be. I suspect that if it happens, it wouldn't be until the fall. The weather will help us. Viruses, respiratory viruses transmit less efficiently as it gets warmer. And we spend more time outside. And this is really a virus that transmits indoors. So I'd be very surprised if we see a sixth wave. There really would have to be uh, significant uh, transmissions occurring, people spending a lot of time indoors um, and, and, and the like for that to occur. But certainly we need to remember every, every minute of every day COVID's around. When you, are you watching what's happening kind of back east? Because I know in Ontario and Quebec, there are concerns that they are in the sixth wave right now. Well, I think we've transitioned to endemic COVID. I think what we would see if there is an increase would be localized rather than province-wide in any province of Canada And as long as we implement public health measures locally, if they are needed, we can avoid another big Omicron type spike. Are you concerned, though, that, as you say, you're even talking to people about this, right, who think that COVID is in the rearview mirror, that at that point, trying to tell people you got to put the mask back on, is that going to work? Well, if we if if we do it in, in a way that makes sense, that is responding to an outbreak, it may well work. But I would be encouraging people to, to do things to avoid that. Keep washing your hands, stay home if you're sick, get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated, 
get your third shot, and always have that mask in your back pocket or somewhere on your person to put on in a situation where you will be indoors with too many people for too long. I think those are simple things that should become part of our daily routine. And don't throw out your masks. What, what's going on then in our hospitals, Dr. Conway? Like, are the hospitalizations going up? Are we seeing more people with COVID in hospital? Oh, clearly. I think uh, there, there are transmissions that have increased as a result of the lifting of the public health measures that's been occurring over the past several weeks. Hopefully that number will stabilize as the weather and spending more time outdoors sort of reduces the risk of transmission. Uh, but, but it's not going to go away. We're not going to see days where there are no cases in hospital. That's not going to happen for the foreseeable future. So given that now, you know, this week, the big news was that people heading back to school, into the classroom, students, um, and there was no mask mandate. Do you expect over the next few weeks, we will continue to see a little bit, you know, inching up in those hospital numbers? There might be. But again, if we tell each other, especially those of us that still have children that are going to, to school or to high school, to let's, if anyone's sick, they should go home or should not go to school. Keep washing your hands. Let's uh, get that vaccination rate up, especially in uh, children age 5 uh, to 11. And let's, let's, uh, let's be aware that there are some people that are still going to wear masks, and let's respect that. And let's think for, eat for ourselves when we should be putting on a mask. And, and if, if, all, if we do those things, which aren't that hard, it's much easier than what we were asked to do over the past couple of years in, in, most, in most kind of situations. Then we should be uh, better, uh, better off going forward. Do you think enough people are taking advantage of the, the free rapid tests that are available? Oh, absolutely not. Oh. People aren't picking them up. Uh, they need to pick up these tests. And this is, if, if there is someone who has school-aged children and someone is sick at home, use the rapid test, find out if it's COVID. That's the way we're going to identify the transmission networks and interrupt them before we have to have widespread public health measures reimposed. This is the usefulness of the rapid tests right now, to test people who have respiratory symptoms, to see if that is COVID and to act on it appropriately. Why do you think people aren't doing it? I've talked to a number of people about this, and some of them just they haven't bothered, they know it's there. Like, I don't know, it just they don't seem to be that interested in getting them. Yeah, they're not interested in COVID anymore. COVID is old news. We don't want COVID anymore. I think we need to learn to live with COVID going forward. We can do so very productively and with minimal impact on our normal lives. That's kind of where we are. But to ignore that COVID is around is what's going to get us into trouble. And we need to have that conversation. All right. Well, listen, thanks again for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. That is Dr. Brian Conway. He is the Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. It's a very fine line, right, for health officials right now, too, is that they want to tell people, look, this isn't completely gone away, but they also understand that people want to put it behind them and move on. And that the rapid test situation is a good example of that. I went and picked mine up. I happened to be at the drugstore the other day. So I thought, oh, I'll go get my tests. Hadn't done it before now, but you know, easy peasy, show your care card, get your get your box of tests. And uh, I keep hearing and reading all these stories about people who aren't doing it, that they're encouraging more and more people to go and get those tests. They're just waiting for you at the drugstore. Uh, have you done it? 
have you gone and picked yours up or are you one of the people who thinks, you know what, I just, I don't want to know, don't care about it anymore. I am moving on with my life. Send me at cknw.com. Also, we're talking family doctors this morning and clearly there's a lot of you out there who are still looking for one or need one or are frustrated by what's happening. So I'm hearing from a lot of you. Don't forget to use our buzz line on that too, 604-331-289. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it's not every day that high schools in Canada get a visit from a Super Bowl champ, an award-winning NFL player. Dr. Laurent Duvernay-Tardif has won the Super Bowl, of course, with the Kansas City Chiefs. And oh, yes, he's also a medical school graduate who wants to talk to kids about a healthy lifestyle, what that looks like. So that's what he's going to be doing, actually, over the next few months. And he joins us now to talk about that. Thank you for being here. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Why is this so important to you? Why do you want to get out there and talk to kids? I mean, to me, it's just in line with my, you know, my vision. And nutrition has been so important for me growing up, trying to put on weight to play professional football, but also to study. You know, I think I was a better student because I was eating properly. And you see all the amount of fast food and restoration and all that stuff that kids eat all the time. And I feel like we could do a lot to help them, you know. And uh, that's why I partner up with Sodexo. Uh, they're in a bunch of schools all across Canada. They try to put together a good nutrition program that they call Powering Performance to help the kid you know, be better athlete on the field, but also better student in the classroom. So that's why I partner up with them. They must be pretty excited when you come to their school. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of fun. Today we're going to West Point Academy. We're going to, you know, do a little bit of exercise. Then we're going to do some little station, nutrition station. Then we're going to talk about, of course, you know, a little bit of football, but also a little bit of medicine. And, And at the end of the day, you know, it's not necessarily about football or medicine. It's about having passion, you know, and, and trying to, you know, promote and push them at the highest level if you want to. And for me, you know, having football uh, always helped me be a better student and vice versa. You know, growing up, right. I didn't play football to try to become an NFL player. It was more to just channel my excess of energy. And uh, and that's kind of my message today. You know, just just find something that you like, whether it, it's in school or around school, and hold on to it and try to push it. Right, but the the football must also help you get through to the kids, right? Because they they know you and they want to hear that message and it helps that you've got that kind of probably Super Bowl ring that you can also show them at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. F- football helps a little bit, especially when you have a French accent like I do and you try to reach out to kids. <laughs> 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 but, but, uh, but yeah, no, the, the journey helped. And, and, of course, when you play with one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time in Kansas City for like seven years. Uh, you win a Super Bowl. Uh, you got a lot of stories to tell as well. Everybody always talks, when they talk about you, they talk about how you had these two possibilities, right? You had medical school, you had an NFL career, and you, you somehow managed to get them both done. But you've also, you know, haven't been afraid to kind of pause the NFL career when you need to, have you? Yeah, no, you're right. Um, you know, for the past, uh, what, six years before the pandemic hit, uh, I was doing, like you just said, like a, a full football season. And then after that, I would go back to Montreal and start, you know, my clinical rotation at McGill University. And I've done that, you know, for my first six years in the league, graduated in 2018. And uh, after that, the pandemic hit after, just after we won the Super Bowl. So I thought I was going to get a break from medicine because, uh, I, I, I graduated, but it ended up, it, it turned out to be a, like a full-time job in medicine because, like you just said, I, I upped it out of the 2020 season uh, in order to go, to go help in long-term care facilities that were really badly hit back home in, in Montreal. So I spent all of 2020 actually working on the front line, and it, it, was, um, it was hard, but 
I really felt like I was also part of a movement, you know, because if thousands of people went back and helped on the long term uh, in long term care facility, whether it was retired doctor or nurses. So um, it, it's weird to say, but even though I was away from my team, I kind of like integrated a new one, and uh, and I felt like we we made some change, and uh, that's what that's what you wanted, especially in a time of a crisis. Yeah, that's an amazing message to take to kids, too. Although they probably just want to talk a lot of football with you, don't they? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. We've been to a school that have a pretty big hockey program. So we did talk a little bit about hockey, too. But uh, to, to me, honestly, my message is really centered about the importance of uh, education and, and nutrition, you know, because uh, you can be as good as an athlete uh, as you want. You're always one play away, uh, one you know salary cap issue away from from getting cut or retiring or being injured. And at the end of the day, what's going to last forever is your tuition. It's your education, you know. And uh, and for me, that's that's really what I try to promote, you know. In football, we're really lucky because every step you you grow as a football player, you're you're tied up to you know high school to colleges. Uh, so you, you build that, you know, knowledge and, and that plan B kind of deal, you know, and for me, medicine, I think was more of a plan A, but anyway, uh, but it's not like that for all the sports. So, so it, sometimes it's, it's up to the kid to ask for more, you know, education to, to stick to high school. And sometimes there's even pressure for him to like go in a different path. So I, I think my message to them today is, is really centered around that, the importance of education, the importance of sticking to school and building that nice environment uh, with, with good food, good teacher, and that stimulate our kid. And at the end of the day, that's that's what you want. You know, school is more than just a place to get uh, A's and maths and and B in French or English. It's it's also a place where where you learn how to interact with each other, where you learn how to win, where you learn how to lose. Uh, and uh, and and I think those translate sometimes even more to the real world than actually you know studying for religion class for example you know i don't know many people who would say the nfl was plan b but that's that's what you just said so do you see yourself getting back to it i know you're a free agent right now do you see yourself heading back there yeah i mean i got a, a few questions that i that i gotta ask myself you right free agency started just a week ago um so i'm i'm actually just waiting to see what are the offers there's a couple things on the table right now uh, but for me, there's also medicine, you know, and every time I'm pushing medicine a year further, uh, when I'm when I talk about medicine, I talk about the, the specialty program, you know, the residency that I still got to do. Uh, I, I feel like it's going to get harder and harder for me to get back into it. You know, so uh, I got to find a balance between uh, a good opportunity to play football for you know a couple more years and, and uh and making sure that I can be a physician for the next 30 years. So that's uh, that's what I'm figuring out right now. So we'll, we'll know more in the next couple of weeks, I guess. Well, enjoy your time with the kids that you're spending across Canada. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. appreciate that. That's Laurent Duvernay-Tardif, of course, NFL player, Super Bowl champion, also spending the next couple of months visiting high schools across Canada. This is Mornings with Simi. The welfare of Indigenous children is definitely going to be a discussion topic today. We know the Prime Minister is heading to uh, meet with Williams Lake First Nation leaders to talk about what has happened there over the last few months. 
And once again, we are dealing with issues about how the government looks after Indigenous children in its care. BC's representative for children and youth has put out a report on this, areas that really need to be worked on. So we wanted to dive into that, find out what are those areas. Joining us now is Jennifer Charlesworth, BC's representative for children and youth. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Simi. What were you looking at in this latest report? We started with the premise of trying to understand where funding's coming from and where's it going and what benefit it has to Indigenous children and families in British Columbia, and that's First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and Urban Indigenous children. So we started out trying to figure that out, and then what we discovered were a number of things that were of concern to us. Okay, like what? The first thing is that we discovered that the kind of support and funding that you get for programs and services depends very much on where you live. So if you are on on reserve, if you're a child and family living on reserve, then the supports that are available there are at a much higher rate now than they are if you are living off reserve. And of course, we know that the majority of Indigenous children and families live off reserve. Right. Okay. So it seems like we've been working on this for so long. How can we still have these kinds of transparency problems? Yes, there's a number of things. One is things are moving very quickly. The landscape is changing. And in fact, at the federal level, they used to fund at a lower level. But the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal made a decision in 2016 that found the practices of Indigenous Services Canada, the federal funders for on-reserve services, to be discriminatory. And so as a result of that, the federal government since 2016, slowly but surely, has addressed some of the issues that were identified in Canadian Human Rights Tribunal so that the funding is more appropriate to the needs of the children living on reserve and their families and focuses on prevention, which is such a critical thing. By the same token, the province, which used to provide greater resources for the off-reserve population, actually has fallen further and further behind because of the federal improvements. And the, the province doesn't put as much attention to prevention and early intervention, which from my perspective is critical. I'd much rather have families supported and children thrive within their families and communities than being brought into government care. Yeah, I think anybody would agree with that, right? Is yes. The best thing to do is to help people improve their situation where they are with their family members. So how is it that exactly. BC has fallen behind? Because it felt like we were making changes when the government first, this government first came into power, they were committed to doing all this. Has the attention kind of fallen off or was it the pandemic or what happened? Uh, well, that's a very good question. I wouldn't say that the, uh, the attention has fallen off, but I think that, you know, our fiscal frameworks, our funding models, our structures, our ways of gathering information, I don't think that they have kept up with the aspirations and the goals that government has. So as a good example, the way in which the funding is distributed to um, organizations or agencies or to ministry staff has just not been keeping up. So the fiscal frameworks are just not as good as what's available now in the in the uh, federal uh, landscape. The other thing is that it's so important to know where your money is going, to whom is it going, or for whose benefit, and what are the outcomes of the monies that you're spending. And what we found was that the uh, Ministry of Children and Family Development systems are just not very good at collecting data. We would ask questions and they would tell us, we don't know the answer. What kind of, like, how hard are these questions? Are these questions that you feel like, listen, this is basic, you should know the answer? Yeah, yeah, I think so. For example, 
there are 84 of the 204 nations in this province who actually don't have what's called an Indigenous Child and Family Service Agency providing services to their children. So these are our nations, so on reserve. So the funding comes from the federal government to the ministry, and then the ministry allocates resources to support those uh, nations. But they can't track the money and the way it flows from the feds out into those communities. So for me, those are kind of basic transparency issues. Okay, you're right, because I think of why can't they track that? If they're sending the money out there, this would seem like a basic thing is to be able to track where it goes and what it does. Yes, and we actually had to bring in some pretty high-powered expertise in uh, the Institute for Physical Studies and Democracy at University of Ottawa that specializes in tracking these things, and somebody who is an executive director in the ministry, uh, previously a retired executive director in finance, and they had to help us figure out how do we track this. So if we had to bring in these um, exceptional uh, folks to help us make sense of what we call the spaghetti, um, then we really have a difficult time uh, thinking that the staff within the ministry are able to track this information as well. But the key is there, you were able to do it, right, for your report? We were able to do some things, but there were still lots of questions. So our report says it's time to address and bring in those Canadian Human Rights Tribunal principles that really support the prevention and the early intervention, just as you said, how important that is. And then we also said, here are a number of things that need to be done with respect to your fiscal um, uh, management tools and your data tools and data stewardship so that we know where is the money, where is it going, what kind of outcomes are happening for kids and families. Are things getting better by virtue of these investments? So the report came out yesterday. What has the reaction been like from the government? What have you heard? I've heard that there's an acknowledgement that these issues have been longstanding, so we definitely are in agreement there. I am not the first to raise these. In fact, I've been around the block since uh, 2006, actually, in some of these conversations about improving the fiscal management. Um, uh, So that we agree on. I think the minister has spoken about the importance of reconciliation, the importance of finding uh, the supports that are necessary for families So we agree on the broad level, but we do disagree on how much progress has been made. So they refer to a thing called this tripartite working group, um, a technical working group that's working on a new fiscal framework. But frankly, that group hasn't met for a very long time. And it's only for on-reserve in British Columbia. So we are very concerned about the urban dwelling Indigenous children and families. So that's where we really want to see more energy and more effort. Still so much work to be done. Listen, thank you so much for highlighting it for us this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks, Simi. Take care. You too. That's Jennifer Charlesworth, BC's representative for children and youth, talking about once again areas where the government is kind of falling down in terms of making sure, you know, Indigenous kids who don't live on reserves are being looked after. Federal government has improved but we haven't seen the same kind of level of improvement at the provincial level. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been having great discussions this week about home buying and how that's even possible these days. We've heard about the home buyer protection period that the provincial government intends to bring into legislation when passed. It's theoretically supposed to give people more time to consider their options, even obtain a home inspection. 
So what is business like then for home inspectors these days? So we sent our contributor, Raji Solha, out to find out. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Uh, I talked to uh, Sean Anderson, and he owns the Inspector. It's a home inspection service that uh, employs a whole group of home inspectors. And he said that he's seen a noticeable dip this year in his home inspection business because fewer home buyers are getting that home inspected when they make an offer to purchase a house. And he said that frenzy is because of a lack of supply. People are are forced to go in subject free. And Sean says he finds it disconcerting because what are people doing instead? They are doing a post-purchase inspection. My reports are incredibly detailed. So they're quite long winded. So, you know, a hundred page report, maintenance tips, deficiencies, even things that were done right. They're, they're usually in shock when they do a post-purchase. I think it resonates a little bit more with them when they already own the home. I had one recently where after the report was done, the clients were visibly in tears and they had to bringing contractors. And it turned out it was about $350,000 worth of damage or wrong, not damage, stuff to be done. Foundation displacement, which was covered, not until the owner's belongings came out and I came in and smelt a lot of mustiness in the basement. So the contractor took the drywall off, discovered a massive displaced crack in the foundation, which was allowing water to get in. And that wasn't visible on the outside because whoever did the renovation brought the exterior siding all the way down to the ground so you couldn't even see the foundation. That foundation was in such bad shape, they actually lifted the house and put a new foundation. Young first-time buyers, family, you know, (laughs) the bank of mom and dad. And then what did they do? I don't that's the part that kind of concerns me the most is what what do people do? when they're paying $500,000 over asking on a property. And I don't even know how it gets appraised properly anymore, because if it's listed for one seven based on, you know, market comparisons, and they paid, you know, $2 million for it, how does it appraise? I'm just flabbergasted with where people will get the money to make the repairs, or they don't. And they, they live with some of these things. Oh man, Raji, that story because I'm I've been concerned ever since this trend started that that is what is happening out there that people are getting sticker shock. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the inspector I talked to, he said with this bill that was meant to create the cooling period, the cool off period so that people could, you know, consider their offers and get these inspections done. He said that actually the government failed in the way that they went about it. He said this kind of one pager for the bill with some bullet points, it's not enough. And he, and he said that the, the breadth of the industry, all the fields there, they weren't consulted. We're talking contractors, contractors, realtors, inspectors, mortgage brokers. He said all those parties should have been involved in discussion with the government before they made this announcement. Um, and I made calls to people in those fields yesterday. And one thing that they all said regarding inspections is that 
everyone agreed that an inspection should be done. It should be done by a third party, maybe at the cost of the seller, and then provided the document, you know, usually 100 pages or so would be provided to all parties afterwards. And this inspector told me that he sometimes uh, will show up at a house and there are a dozen other inspectors on the property independently doing their assessments. And he said, if anything, if there was just one inspection done on for each home, for each property that was provided to people, it would be better for the inspection industry. And I said, well, how do you figure that? Wouldn't you want more business? But he said, well, there are too many inspectors out there that aren't doing a very good job. And he would like to see the field you know, take a look at itself too. There should be uh, inspectors that are just properly certified, kind of you obtain a, an apprenticeship, maybe do a, some kind of a SEAL program to make sure that every inspector is is doing a good and high quality job so that people wouldn't feel like they should also go out and get an independent inspection done. Um, but he said all these uh, matters would have come up if they were consulted by the government. And on that note, I also I asked uh, you know a mortgage broker uh, what they thought about this program, and they said uh, you know even though they would benefit from a cooling period, they would uh, that would allow them the time to work with their clients at securing the right kind of financing for them. Uh, that they would prefer if the government didn't meddle at all, which really? I thought was interesting. Yeah, they said that even though it was better for them personally, that it would be better for the market overall if uh, the market was allowed to just reign free and kind of do its thing. I, I, I called some mm. realtors. I spoke with a couple of different people in different parts of the real estate industry. And I, and I heard that pretty strongly. They didn't want the government meddling. Well, of course they don't want to, because that's a lot of people who are making a lot of money off of it. Meanwhile, people can't find a home. I'm surprised that they don't see the other side of that. Well, they see that there are challenges. They see it's hard for families to get into the market right now. But a lot of them were saying, you know, I even talked to a realtor who said uh, they certainly didn't want to go on a tape with me to say this, but they told me that it's not a good time to buy. If, if you're serious, you're you're trying to get into the market, it's not a good time to buy. Don't buy now. Hold off because the market's going to correct itself. And and she said, it always does. And I've been in this business for 20 years, she told me, and it's going to do it again. Um, and hmm. so that we should just kind of wait a little bit and be patient. But one thing that was echoed by everyone was that um, inspections, home inspections should be mandatory. Really? So they would support, but, you know, we had somebody point that out yesterday too, and we, we talked about it and somebody raised the point that if you make it mandatory, the thing is with inspections is that they're always designed to find flaws. And I'm not sure a seller wants to hire somebody who's only going to point out the flaws. Yes. Good point. And that's why that person should be a third party should have no vested interest. Um, and, and an inspector will also, uh, the, one, the one I talked to yesterday for this piece today, told me that um, an inspector will also point out what was done well, which I thought was interesting, but that's not going to be every true. inspector. Again, that's going to be someone who's really, really good at their job um, and who does a thorough job. But uh, yes, yeah, some sellers will deliberately hide uh, flaws and problems uh, in their property, whereas other sellers might not themselves even know about issues exactly. like mold or you know foundation issues. But like uh, the inspector I talked to was uh, saying in this piece here, um, it's very costly. It can drive that price of a home up uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars if you miss out on something that was massive. Mm, I know that's the thing that we're struggling with here. All right, Raji, thank you. 
Thanks, Simi. So interesting. That's Raji Sohal talking about home inspectors, how they feel about this idea of this home buyer's protection bill giving people more time, like a cooling off period after you, you know, put in an offer on a home, giving you a chance to actually get an inspection. Now, is that something you would welcome, like mandatory inspections too? What do you think? Simi at CKNW.com.